Michael just told me to get you all under control. <laughs> Downright boisterous. If you have your Bible with you, if, or if you didn't bring one with you, you'll find them in the seats around you somewhere in the rack. Would you turn to Mark chapter 9? And uh, some of you are probably expecting we'd go to Acts this morning. I'll explain to you in a minute why we're not going there this morning, but I want to pray with you first. Um, and, and, and in that vein, I want to remind you of something that Michael said earlier, just to echo that what's coming up this Wednesday night is really significant in the life of the church, of uh, the prayer and praise time. And I want to encourage you to take that really seriously, the potential to be here with the rest of the New Hope family. All three services coming together in one time, so it'll be really crammed, I hope. Um, but we're coming together for the, for the purpose of praying together about what God's doing here. Um, not just because Easter's two weeks away from today, and obviously we recognize Easter's a very cool time to engage with people who are visiting, who, who want to learn more about Jesus, but also because this church is growing a lot. And many of you are aware that we've been talking for about a year now of what to do in regards to our, our physical facility. What's God's plan about where do we go next? How do we manage this kind of growth? And, and what's he have in mind for us? So we want to make sure we raise that to a really high value and pray about it. And, and not in generalities, but in specifics. So we want to pray about that on Wednesday night too. And just let me encourage you, between now and Easter, be praying about those who will be coming in the door. Be praying about some of these decisions we'll have to make about our, our physical location. Be active in that. But with that in mind, let's go into prayer before we step into the text. Would you join me in that? Father, I thank you for the voices that just lifted up incredible praise to you out of celebration, a recognition of who we are in you. I thank you for the baptisms that are about to take place here and what we get to watch with that unfolding, the, the physical evidence of lives that have been transformed, people who are willing to say, I belong to Jesus and I'm, I'm not afraid to put myself on display. Thank you for the witness I thank you for every time there's a baptism, we get to rejoice in, in watching what you gave us as um, just this evidence of a brand new beginning. We pray right now as we open up your word and we look into your text that you would give us an understanding through the power of your Holy Spirit, who is our true teacher. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. So back in the 1990s, I was asked this question, Mark, do you really believe what you say you believe is really real? I was going through a hard time, and a person who was more senior than I was speaking into my life who knew me decided to push pretty hard. And in the midst of the circumstances, throughout that question, do you believe what you say you believe is really real? When we're going through times where circumstances seem really difficult, that's a great question to ask ourselves. What do I really believe in the midst of this circumstance that I'm going through? Is, is God in the midst of this? See, I'm of the mind that God presents opportunities to us all the time. Like within the scope of a 24-hour period, God presents opportunities to us to give evidence that we believe what we say we believe. We saw that just in the last couple of weeks here when we were looking at the book of Acts. Peter and John, they get arrested, they're thrown into prison, they go before the Supreme Court. We studied that together, and we saw that they were able to put on display that they actually believed what they said they believed was really real. We're going to look at a story that helps to emphasize that this morning. So we're going to drill down into it, and here's why. 
Next week's Palm Sunday. Couldn't teach on the book of Acts on Palm Sunday. Week after that's Easter. Couldn't teach the book of Acts on Easter. And so I decided, well, I've got this one standalone Sunday. Let's go into what it looks like to demonstrate whether or not you believe what you say you believe is really real by looking at Mark chapter 9. We're going to do that together. And, And the basis of that question that I just asked comes out of this thought. God extends opportunities to you and I on a regular basis, almost a daily basis. He invites us to join him in his work here on planet Earth. Let me show you a scriptural passage to back that up. 2 Corinthians 5.15, it says this, He died for all so that they, meaning us, who live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, here's the struggle. Even though you and I know that, even though it's a reality intellectually, we can read that, it seems illogical. It seems illogical that the God of the universe who created everything would extend an opportunity for you and I to join him. And here's why it seems illogical. Because generally, most of us disqualify ourselves by saying, maybe that guy, but not me, not with my background, not with my past. You you don't know where I came from. God would never use me that way. And so we immediately disqualify ourselves. But church, honestly, when you stop and consider the litany of the patriarchs, and I'm talking about from Adam all the way through to Peter and the disciples in the New Testament, you begin to understand most of them disqualified themselves. They were very skeptical about God ever using them. Matter of fact, when you pull back the veil on our biblical ancestors, what you discover behind the curtain isn't really all that attractive. Individuals who messed up throughout the course of their life, but God continued to use them. So here's the illogical thing to me. Our God knows all those defects about us, and he still invites us to join him. That's what 2 Corinthians is talking about. He died for us, so we die to ourselves so that we might live for him. So here's the problem. What seems illogical, what seems completely unreasonable, quickly translates to skepticism, and we are a skeptical people. In the United States especially, American citizens are very skeptical people. Perhaps because we're so well-informed, we're so well-educated, we become very skeptical about spiritual things. I want you to know being skeptical is not new to our society. It goes all the way back into the ancient times of the Old Testament. Moses was a huge skeptic about the things that God said he was going to do. He just didn't understand God's activities. He, he couldn't process what God was up to. But it doesn't stop with Moses. Nicodemus, a brilliant lawyer who came to Jesus by night, is very skeptical about the things that Jesus was saying. Thomas, I mean, you want to see the pinnacle of skepticism. I won't believe that Jesus actually died and rose again unless I get to see the holes in his hands, put my hand into the hole in his side. Then I will believe. But until I see it, I'm not going to believe. So let's ask ourselves this question. What produces a skeptic? Why does someone become spiritually skeptical? I know it's not because we're born that way. We're not predisposed to being skeptical about the things of God. So I've arrived at these two things that usually cause people to be skeptical about spiritual things. Either it's this one, a lifetime of failed expectations. Things didn't measure up to what they expected it to measure up to. Or here's the bigger one. I think this one is a more common one. A huge misunderstanding of God's activities the way he does what he does. 
So let's go to Mark chapter 9 and verse 14 and look at this story that helps us to understand that principle. Now, here's the background. Jesus has been up on a mountainside. It's called Mount Hermon. It's in the northern part of Israel, and it's where the um, the event called the Mount of Transfiguration took place. You just briefly, if you're not familiar with the story, there's this event where Jesus glowed white, literally. It was transformed before the eyes of Peter and John and James. And, and they wrote about it because it was such an awesome experience. Well, they're on this mountain. That means the other nine disciples are at the bottom of the mountain. That's where we pick up in verse 14. It says this, when they, meaning Jesus and those three disciples, came back to the disciples... They saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Uh, If you're not familiar with the word scribes, it means lawyers. These are the the professionals who studied the law. That they're so far north, up by Mount Hermon, means one thing. They're monitoring Jesus because they live in Jerusalem. Why would they go all the way up there if not to watch Jesus? They're there to monitor him. And now we find them arguing with nine of the disciples. They're in this debate mode. Why? Why? Well, the disciples had tried to heal a boy, and they failed. They didn't do what they had been asked to do, and so the scribes are delighting in the failure, and they begin taunting them. And now the the crowd's listening in, so go with me to verse 15. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, meaning Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you, meaning the scribes, discussing with them? The disciples. What are you, the scribes, discussing with my disciples? Now, when it says they're amazed, the crowd saw Jesus and they're amazed, it's very, very strong in the Greek language. Ekthambao means they're astonished, utterly astonished. Why? Because they all assumed Jesus was up on the mountain, and he was, but now he's right there, and they didn't know it. So the disciples are really glad because the setting has been like the neighborhood bullies have showed up on the playground, and they've been beaten on the helpless school children. And all of a sudden, your big brother, who happens to be the star quarterback of the team, has just walked onto the playground. So the scribes are like, great, Jesus is here. Who knew? So they find themselves in this remarkable situation. That's why the crowd is going like, yeah, excellent. Now, we see in verse 16, it says he asked them, in the Greek language, it's very strong, meaning he, he demands of them, what are you discussing? Why are you in argument mode? So while Jesus is probing, somebody else raises their hand. A man surfaces from among the crowd. Verse 17, and one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. So Jesus doesn't get a response from the disciples or from the scribes. He gets a response from this dad who's got a far deeper concern than anybody else there. He's already been crushed by the circumstances of the argument. Uh, Matthew, who gives us some insights into this, and matter of fact, Luke does as well. Matthew and Luke also write about this story, tells us that this man held Jesus in such high regard, he actually called him Lord, not just teacher, and that he fell on his knees in front of Jesus. He, he held him to that higher regard, and Luke tells us that he lets us know this is his only son. So when verse 17 says, I brought you my son, he's saying, my only son. But when he arrived, he didn't know Jesus was gone. He came looking for Jesus, but he found the nine disciples, the next best thing. 
So he thinks Jesus is with the disciples. So here's what you need to understand. This dad has been looking for Jesus, not just looking. He's in pleading mode because he's in distress. So so picture this with me. You've got a man here with his only son who's face-to-face with the only son of God. Do you think Jesus understands his heart, what's going on here, this ache that this dad is feeling inside? What you see here is an incredibly graphic description, perhaps one of the most graphic descriptions in the entire Bible of physical, spiritual warfare and what it looks like. We're told in verse 17, he's possessed with a spirit which makes him mute, meaning the boy cannot speak. His vocal cords are literally bound up. It looks like, from medical descriptions, this kid is struggling with severe epilepsy. I'll I'll let you decide as you work through this what you think is going on here, but Scripture's pretty clear. There's demon possession here. It seizes the boy. Now, there's an ancient word that's used for seizing someone when they begin grinding their teeth, and and it's a, a shrill shriek sound that comes out of the individual. That is used specifically here in verse 26 when the father starts talking about He's not only mute, he's deaf, and it tears at him, and he convulses, and it bruises him, and he begins gnashing his teeth, and then this shrill cry comes out of him. So verse 18 gets really graphic when it says it slams him to the ground. He foams, and he grinds in his teeth, and he stiffens out. All of this description is of a person who's completely out of control. This goes far beyond grand mal seizure. There's something else here that Jesus recognizes. You'll see it as the verses unfold. So you have a child who's deaf and mute, and it's compounded with burnings. And you'll see in a few more verses near drownings as this spirit tries to drown the child. People think he's a lunatic, and he screams in such a way it'll pierce your ears. So this is his life. And the dad's one hope is to find Jesus. And Jesus isn't there. His followers are there. So he goes from Jesus to Jesus' followers. And we see this really sad comment in verse 18 when he says, your disciples couldn't do it. They've got no power. It's, it's gone. They can't exert what is necessary. Does that not seem strange to you, especially as you think of the chronology of things? All the way back in Matthew 10, Jesus gave power to the disciples to deal with these kind of issues. Look with me on the screen. Matthew 10, 1, Jesus gave them, meaning the disciples, authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So they've been given power. And actually, they've been successful. They've had encounters like this. But now they can't do it. What's missing? They got the promise. The promise is that they would have the power. Here's what's crucial. They didn't appropriate the power. It's available, but they didn't act on it. And here's what I want you to notice, and it's very subtle. This inability of the followers of Jesus to act in this situation has produced another spiritual skeptic, someone who begins questioning God. You'll watch this as it unfolds here. Verse 19, And he answered them and said, Jesus speaking, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. 
Now, when verse 19 says, how long shall I put up with you? I'm, I'm going to put that in the list of things I never want to hear God say. How about you? Yeah. How long do I have to put up with you? And you might expect to hear that out of a school teacher who is absolutely fed up after dealing with a classroom of kids all week. Or you might expect to hear that out of a, a military drill sergeant who's, who's dealt with a bunch of recruits. How long do I have to put up with you guys? But this is Jesus. This is the Son of God. And he says, you're trying my patience. You don't get many glimpses into this side of Jesus. Is it safe to say that he looks exasperated here? You're absolutely seeing that. Here's why. We forget how patient God has to be with us. All the way back on Mount Sinai, God said to Moses, I am long-suffering, meaning I put up with a lot. I am merciful to generations. Here's why that really strikes me. Because Jesus is used to giving command to angels, and angels, they respond instantly. They always do what they're told, unless they're going to total rebellion and then become demons, fallen angels. But what we have here are the followers of Jesus who are disappointing him. That's why he says, how long will I have to put up with you? You, you want to see this kind of pain of disappointment physically? Today, when you get home and you flip on the Spartan game, just watch Tom Izzo on the sidelines. He's got the most visible face of frustration you have ever seen among a coach in the basketball leagues. And he's going to start ripping his hair out. Come on! Because somebody misses a layup. Wait, can you imagine not Tom Izzo's disciples, but the disciples of Jesus here? So who does Jesus have in mind specifically when he says, I'm dealing with this unbelieving generation? Well, clearly the first century generation, those living in that period of time, they're unbelieving. And the scribes who are standing right there, they're clearly unbelievers. But who is Jesus specifically talking about here? He's talking about the disciples. He goes one step further. Luke 9 gives us an insight from his angle of this view. He says, you unbelieving and perverted generation. Now, because of what the word perverted means in the English language, that really kind of gets our attention of what in the world is he talking about here? Because I know what it means in English. Well, let me give you the Greek word for perverted as Jesus uses it on the screen here. It's in your notes also this morning, but it's the word diastrepho. And diastrepho actually means not only to distort, it means to misinterpret, meaning misinterpreting the things of God. Here's how this word diastrepho was always used. It was used among furniture makers, of which Jesus was. His daddy built cabinets. His daddy was a carpenter. So this word diastrepho was used when there was good material available, good wood product, but the worker failed to measure properly and produced an inferior piece of workmanship to the degree that it became distorted, meaning it was of no use. It's twisted. It's out of shape. No wonder Jesus has frustration because he's going to be gone soon. The disciples, the followers of Jesus are expected to step in and be Jesus in the world and they're failing. Go with me to verse 20. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Uh, I've underlined he saw him on the screen so that you pay attention to that. The he who saw him, capital H, him is Jesus. The he who saw him is the demon. The demon is 
making eye contact. He saw Jesus. Matter of fact, we see Luke's version. He tells us as a result of this, something happened. Luke 9, 42, while he was still approaching, the demons slammed him to the ground. So this child has been smashed into the dirt. It begins to lurch and convulse, foaming at the mouth, add to all the incredible complications of this physical scene. And now spiritual warfare rears its ugly head because the demon knows whose presence he's in and he understands it's the great I am. This angel before he fell stood in heaven in the presence of the king of kings. But through rebellion, he finds himself on earth and now he sees Jesus on earth, the very one whom he's up against. And he knows his domination is soon going to end. So he's about to make a final attack. Go with me to verse 21. And he asked his father, meaning Jesus asked, he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said from childhood, it has often thrown him into both the fire and into the water to destroy him. Jesus is asking for the case history. Why? Well, it's not because Jesus doesn't know. It's for your benefit 2,000 years later. It's for the benefit of the crowd who's watching this. Very clearly, the dad has just established the length, the severity of what's going on here. This isn't a short-term illness. This is something that's been going on since my son was a toddler. This is not a temporary thing. That means that the healing can only be interpreted as a real, legitimate miracle when what happens is about to happen. So verse 22, when he says he's been often thrown, he's saying this is not by accident. He's been thrown into what? The water and the fire. Well, in the first century, people commonly cooked outside, especially in the heat. They'd go outside instead of cooking inside the house so the heat wouldn't build up. A lot of fires around. This child, by this spirit, has been thrown into fires, hot coals, And there's open wells and there's bodies of water. This demon has tried to kill this child. He's especially violent, especially dangerous. The child is likely disfigured from scars. You imagine if this is your life every single day, endless danger. Do you know anyone who's dealing with that kind of crushing incidences in their life? And I don't mean demon possession. But things seem to go wrong day after day after day. And it literally feels shredded by the attacks that seem to come their way. This is what Jesus is dealing with. Can you understand the brokenness of this dad's heart? What kind of a hardship for this family? Can you imagine trying to sleep in that house two in the morning? A child who screams with ear-piercing pitches? You're not going to get a whole lot of sleep in that house. Now you understand why this dad says what he does in verse 22b. Look with me. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can do anything. This is where I think you see what happened as a result of the disciples not taking advantage of the opportunity. God put an opportunity in front of the disciples Do you really believe what you say you believe is really real? How did they respond to that? I think right here you're seeing the disciples are bearing a direct responsibility for what would have been potential faith in Jesus begin to flounder based on what he's asked here. Just think this through. When the dad left home that morning, 
He went with his son to look for Jesus because he believed Jesus could do something about the situation. Jesus was gone and up on the mountain. He's heard about the disciples, so he turns to the disciples. The disciples can't do anything. Now you find this father questioning the capacity of Jesus. If you can do anything, you might say, oh, how do you get that, Mark? I want to show you the word that he actually used. Look with me up on the screen at this Greek word. The word dunamai is not dunamus, not power, but it's asked in a different way. He's saying, do you have the power to resist this force? Do you, Jesus, have the ability to resist what has come against me? If you can do this, take pity on me. I want you to notice very subtly here, during this entire discussion, the child is still on the ground. You, you might think when they brought the child to Jesus that Jesus instantly would recognize and say, come out, spirit, but he doesn't. What's going on here? Jesus knows this child is still on the ground. What's he doing? He's allowing the father to wrestle with his faith. And everyone who's watching, you and I included, because we're spectators to this story right now, why would God allow this child to continue to writhe on the ground? This is an invitation. Come a step further. Do you really believe what you say you believe is really real? To the degree that you absolutely trust God, no matter the circumstances. That's why I believe he's allowing this to play out. The great I am is literally standing in front of them. The one who told the sea how far it could go and no further literally has just been on the mountaintop, literally has just heard God's voice say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He's the one in whom I'm well pleased. He glowed white. That's why you see Jesus' response in verse 23 this way. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Do you think that Jesus might be a little bewildered here at this point? I, I see that. I think there's some of that going on, but there's something much bigger, something much more complicated here, much more significant, and I don't want you to miss it. The phrase, if you can, literally in the Greek language is put into brackets, because what Jesus has done is taken the phrase that the Father used and thrown it right back at him. If you take the word if and make that the emphasis, it's questioning Jesus. It'd be if you can, but that's not how Jesus repeats it back to him. In the, in the language, the word you is where the emphasis is at. So Jesus has taken the Father's own phrase and thrown it back at him. If you can... All things are possible to him who believes. That's why he's put it back at him. See, the God question here is not Jesus' ability to heal. The real question is, do you have the capacity to trust God? Now, here's how this translates to our day and age. The skeptic is going to say, in order for me to believe, God's got to meet my conditions. If I'm going to believe, God's got to meet my conditions because I must see to believe. And then I'll believe, but i got to see first. So Jesus has turned the tables 180 degrees. His response is, you got to believe in order to see. And here's the beautiful thing. If you're struggling this morning, if, you, if you're finding yourself to be a spiritual skeptic like this dad, wondering whether or not this stuff is legitimate, is this real? If that's you, here's the beautiful thing. God will meet you 
He'll meet you with open arms if you seek him with all your heart. That's a principle of scripture. He promises to meet us. See, what I want you to see in the next verse is Jesus' statement back to him draws something out of the dad that every skeptic would like to scream if they absolutely could find the words. Watch the dad in the next verse, verse 24. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. See, in a split second, he has recognized skepticism has a hold of him. His belief is so fragile. He's incredibly honest. How transparent is this guy? How vulnerable? How many are willing to say those kind of words to God the Father? Help me with my unbelief. I'm struggling in this situation. I want you to see something on the screen that you can hear, but it means something different when you read it yourself. There is an essential element to your faith to cause your faith to grow. Recognize the reality of this statement. Faith is only possible with the help of the one who is its object. God the Father is the object of your faith. Your faith is only possible with his help, and this Father owns it. He lives in the presence of unbelief. He's dealing with it in his own life. You're looking at it in high-definition picture, and I want you to see what he's wrestling with here. When he says, help me, he's using the Greek word boetheo, and it means this, run to me. Run towards me, Jesus. Help me get there. So if you're a parent this morning, you've dealt with this issue. You've heard one of your children hurt at some point in time, screaming, maybe from the other end of the house or out in the playground or in the yard. Do you just stand there and listen to them cry for help, or do you run to them to see what's going on? That's the meaning behind this request. Run to me, Father. Help me with this situation that I'm dealing with because I'm struggling with unbelief. Move forward to watch because the real work now is done. Do you notice that? What happens next is the demon is cast out. Because Jesus recognizes the real work is already done. Go with me next to verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. I'm speculating this crowd is increasing in size in addition to the people that are already there. But here's something that there's absolutely no question about. When Jesus says, I command you, he uses the word epitasso, and it's a military term. It's something only a commanding officer would use of those who answer to him. See, Jesus has commanded the angels before, right? He's commanding a fallen angel here. He's literally saying, soldier, get in line. This is a word that's only used in military rankings in Scripture and in the ancient world. And Jesus is using it of this one. It means to arrange a soldier in rank. So this spirit is so powerful, he dares to resist Jesus. And the departure almost takes the life of this boy. Go to these last couple verses. Verse 26. After crying out, and the word is kradzo there, after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead 
See, the demon has taken one final whack at trying to kill the child. The word kradzo is where we get the word crazy from in the English language. It, it literally means a shrieking scream. From the depths of hell, this demon is screaming out, I don't want to obey you, but I have to. And with this final scream, the demon runs. So the boy is left looking as though he's dead. And here's what I would love you to see in this last part. When you see this child laying on the ground, maybe, maybe mentally you've got this picture in your head right now. I want you to see yourself there. He's us. People who have been crushed by the things of Satan after a lifetime of being shredded and left for dead by Satan. Look at the reverse church. Everything is changed by the touch of Jesus. Jesus has invaded their world and everything changes. There's, there's no more screams. There's no more convulsions. Watch what happens. Verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up and he got up. The amazing trauma that's been going on for years ends immediately. Jesus speaks, Satan is dethroned. No more foaming at the mouth, no more rigidity, no more shrieks. The way this ends is kind of sad. Go, go forward with me. Verse 28. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. The question here reflects a really, really deep concern. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've had some mountaintop experiences where you've been successful in the past, and you find yourself failing and falling short, you have to look at this passage and really want to examine it close because we're just like the disciples. Why would they ask this? Because it really concerns them. Why the failure? Well, in verse 23, Jesus has just said, nothing is impossible. But here he gives the answer that nothing is actually conditional. The nothing is impossible is conditioned by prayer. So you guys didn't pray. That's what he's telling them. This kind only comes out through prayer, and apparently they believed that power was in themselves. They failed to put God on display. Go to the Father, ask him how he wanted to use them. So when he says this kind only comes out through prayer, meaning you didn't. You didn't go to the Father in prayer. That's why the story ends this way. This kind only goes out through prayer, meaning there's been no preparation of the heart. That's why this coming Wednesday night is so significant in the life of the church, for us to go before the Father and say, how do you want us to respond? Will you release and unleash the power of your spirit so that we will see your kingdom advanced? Notice the results of this story. Because they didn't prepare their heart and because they didn't prepare their spirit, the critics took after them. And this father who needs the help became skeptical about the claims of who Jesus is to actually be able to change somebody's life. And here's the indictment. And I think the indictment still exists in 2015. The indictment is this. Poorly prepared believers bear responsibility we bear responsibility in other people becoming spiritual skeptics. And I'm not just talking about casting out demons, church. I'm talking about how we respond to the opportunities that God puts in front of us. Let me give you an example. 
This last night in the Saturday night service, there was a woman who was baptized. Her name is Sandy. Now, here are the circumstances about how she came to Christ. She came to Christ within the last six weeks. You're about to see people baptized with similar stories, but Sandy has a remarkable story in that back in October, a couple here in the church leaving one of the services saw her out here in the yard and decided to engage her. She's walking across the lawn, walking over to the apartment buildings and just invited her to come to church. She didn't respond to that. Now fast forward to January. Gary is out here cleaning snow off from his car on the side of this road. It's just a blowing storm, a blizzard, bitter cold temperatures. And this woman is outside walking, and and Gary said to her, man, this is horrible weather for you to be out in. Can I help you? She said, well, I'm walking down to Rite Aid to get some groceries. Didn't have a car. Gary said, well, can I give you a ride? She jumped in the car, and he drove her down to Rite Aid and then took her back and then gave her some pamphlets and invited her to come to church. A couple days later, she was out walking across the parking lot and fell out here, and Matt Hall, our guitarist, saw her and helped her up, and she said to Gary later, man, there's some really nice people at your church. Maybe I should be checking this out. Well, what's been going on, church? The the God of the universe has been tugging on Sandy. Two days after seeing Gary out here on the road, she came to visit him in his office and prayed to receive Christ as her Savior. She'd been going through a lot of messy things in her life, but God redeemed her. We watched her get baptized last night. See, that's an opportunity, a circumstance in which God put in somebody's path and they just responded to it. came right out of a very simple kindness conversation. What I want you to notice is the indictment that comes against these poorly prepared believers. They recognize, they bear responsibility. That's why they're saying, why could we not cast this one out? Here's, this is just for free. It's, it's beyond the scope of what we're talking about this morning. But did you notice the fallen angel? He knew immediately who's walking in the power of the Spirit and who's not. The fallen angel didn't respond to the disciples. He didn't need to. He recognized they hadn't gone to the Father for prayer, but he responds immediately to Jesus. That's why Jesus is grieved. See, I am of the mind, church, that God constantly presents opportunities to us, opportunities to give evidence that what we say we believe is really real, how we engage in conversations throughout the course of the week. So I come away from this asking myself, how often is God grieved with me? How how often is he grieved with you when we fail to act on opportunities? 1 Corinthians 4, Paul said, I've been made a spectacle unto the world. The word spectacle is the word theatron. It's where we get the English word theater. Paul said, I've been been made a theater to the world. It, It comes from the ancient coliseums where gladiators were put on display. What you're about to see in baptism are people who are willing to say, I'm going on display for God. I'm willing to say, and I'm going to put my stake in the ground, I belong to Jesus. That's why baptism is so powerful. So we find these individuals here who are willing to be put on display in the book of Acts, but not necessarily in the book of Mark, and they learned lessons along the way. Here's my challenge for you. In the circumstances that happen in your life this week that you didn't plan, in the conversations that you didn't intend to have, in the times where you meet people that you thought were just coincidental, recognize God is in all of those circumstances. And he's just waiting, waiting for us to put him on display in the midst of it. How we respond to it is entirely up to us. 
So I want you to leave here this morning with these three key points, and they come to me from someone who spoke into my life. These three things, remember. Number one, God is always at work around you. Number two, God invites you to become involved with him in his work. Number three, and here's the hard one. This is a hard one for me, so I assume it is for you. God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief. It just does. Do I believe that what I say I believe is really real? Here's the great thing about each of those three. They're a bright spot because every one of them leads you into a deeper relationship with the God of the universe. He, he wants to deepen his relationship with you. So let's watch some people now who are about to take a step into that deeper relationship category. Would you pray with me first, though, that God would seal these things in our heart before we do that? Heavenly Father, we recognize that we've just looked at your word. And it's, it, there's a possibility because of the things that are going to go on this afternoon, it, it can quickly fade away. So I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to seal these things in our heart. Speak to us in such a way that we will know that we encountered you and caused us to remember these things. Father, we rejoice with these baptisms now. And we pray that you'll be glorified in the midst of what we're about to observe. It's in Jesus' name we ask all this. Amen.